Amen. Oh, do sit down. And it would be a great help if you could open one of the Bibles near you uh, back to Ezekiel chapter 8 on page 835. That would be a really helpful thing uh, for me and uh, for you as well. And as we start, let me say there, there are some things that everyone knows, isn't there? Some things that everyone knows. Things generally held as always true. A dropped cat always lands on its feet. You can try that from various heights if you like. Uh, computers always crash just before you save your work. And the food that's tastiest is always the worst for you. I feel I've been proving that over the past year somewhat um, as I get on a bit more weight. And I guess in the realm of religion, and we could add, God always listens when you pray. Everyone knows that, don't they? Uh, listening to prayer is what God does. He's the ultimate listening ear in moments of distress and desperation. Uh, which is what makes Ezekiel chapter 8 and the end of verse 18 so unsettling. Oh, just have a look at it. At the end of verse 18, it says this, Although they shout in my ears, I will not listen. As some translators have it, even if they scream in my ears, I won't listen. See, what could get God to the point where he says, I won't listen to you? See, imagine the situation there, uh, you're desperate for help, life collapsing, and loved ones in danger. And at your lowest, you cry out to the God you're told is loving. And a note comes back from him saying, I will never listen to your cries for help. See, what could make God act like that? Now that's a question that Ezekiel 8 and 9 will answer. Uh, chapter 8, Ezekiel, who, who we've seen as God's spokesperson to the people of Judah in exile, is at home, verse 1. That's where he is, and some of the Jewish elders, also in exile, have come to visit. Uh, perhaps hoping for a message from God, something that will say, things are going to be okay. Uh, God will soon make things better for you and for Jerusalem. That's the kind of message you want from God, isn't it? Don't worry, everything will be fine. Security and prosperity, health and wealth, God has good things in store. You'll pass your exams. You'll get a boyfriend. Your children will be fine. Your health will improve. Your money's safe. Your job's secure. And the kind of message that warms your heart and sends you home with a smile on your face. And if that's what they were hoping for, well, it's not what they got. And the vision message that Ezekiel gets won't put a smile on your face. It'll wipe it straight off. Uh, did you notice in chapter 8, as you were listening to it being read, Ezekiel's kind of taken on a guided tour of Jerusalem. Uh, but not like the tours we've been on, where we get kind of headphones and an audio guide, and we wander around looking at paintings and sculptures. Uh, no, it's not a tour like that, is it? Just look at verse 2. I looked... This is Ezekiel speaking. And I saw a figure like that of a man. And from what appeared to be his waist down, he was like fire. And from there up, his appearance was as bright as glowing metal. He stretched out what looked like a hand and took me by the hair of my head. The Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven. And in visions of God, he took me to Jerusalem. 
uh, to the entrance to the north gate of the inner court where the idol that provokes the jealousy stood. Uh, This is a guided tour of idolatry. And God drags Ezekiel round it by the hair. See, this isn't just a message to inform our thinking. It's a message designed to unsettle your emotions. And throughout the chapter, God keeps saying, in effect, have you seen this? Follow closely by, and that's not even the worst of it. Did you look at verse 6? Here's what he says. Son of man, do you see what they're doing? And then by the end of verse 6, he's saying, you will see more detestable things than this. I was talking about this passage with some friends during the week. We were trying to sum up something of the, of the feel of this passage of chapter 8. And I think the first thing to know is this. God finds us disgusting because of idolatry. That's chapter 8. And God finds us disgusting because of idolatry. Uh, you'll meet people at times who, who write off the Old Testament as a kind of primitive religion about an angry God. The bizarre suggestion that anger in God somehow makes him less believable. It's a criteria we would never dream of applying to each other that somehow anger is illegitimate for us. I don't think God's anger makes him less convincing. Now here's a God that sounds realistic. So before you write him off, we'd better try and understand his anger. And I say we'd better try and understand it because if you've been here these last two weeks, you'll remember that Andrew has told us that while this message is spoken in the first place to the people of Judah and Israel in exile, in the big sweep of the Bible story, they're presented as a picture of what we're all like. The brothers and sisters, is that not an unsettling thought? As we see God's reaction to them, we're also seeing God's reaction to us. A situation so serious, he'd drag you around it by the hair to make sure he's got your attention. So well, God's anger is focused on idolatry. Look, some words lose their meaning, don't they? Idolatry, I think, is one of them. You just think about statues all the time. So on this drag by the hair tour, we're shown four different takes on it. And as you hear it described and explained, ask yourself, Do I do these things? Uh, These things that disgust God? Uh, We've seen one of the tour is there in verses 5 and 6. Ezekiel's taken to the temple, and it's there that he sees it. A statue to some God or other. And we're not even given its name. But as you hear how it's described, you begin to understand what God says idolatry is about. Just look at verse 5. So I looked, and in the entrance north of the gate of the altar, I saw this idol of jealousy. Or this idol that provokes jealousy. So idolatry is a problem because it's making someone else jealous. There is someone else standing beside the idol at the entrance to the north gate of the altar. You didn't miss him in verse 4, did you? Just have a look. And there before me was the glory of the God of Israel, as in the vision I had seen on the plain. 
Let me have a think about it for a moment. Uh, uh, what kind of picture would represent God? How would you try and sum him up pictorially? How would you illustrate what he's like? Uh, don't go back and look at it, but do you remember two weeks ago, uh, we looked at Ezekiel's vision of God in chapter 1. He was pulsating with light. Every colour of the rainbow. It's surrounded by storm and lightning. It's seated on a throne made entirely of sapphire. And when he speaks, it's like listening to the noise of an army. It's the Bible's kind of picture language. Trying to communicate something of the character and beauty and power of the invisible God. This is the one who's really alive. The one who's bursting with light. The one who's in charge of everything. The one so powerful, his mere voice could sweep an army away. And the summary word the Bible uses for it is glory. In 1999, the Royal Academy hosted a Monet exhibition. Lots of his paintings from the 20th century. And the day uh, the press uh, were allowed in, they, they expected 600 journalists to show up all day. Uh, they ran out of press packs after three hours. And before it opened to the public, uh, they'd already sold 132,000 tickets. Uh, you can understand it, can't you? Monet's paintings are incredible. The colours, the style, they are, well, they're glorious, aren't they? And no wonder people are desperate to see them. And yet in the Jerusalem temple, the God of glory attracts no attention. And even in your life, the God of glory attracts little or no attention. Idolatry may sound like an archaic term, but it's essentially saying, I don't want God. I'm not interested. It's saying there's nothing valuable to see here. You do that at all, and whether you acknowledge it or not, you're living your life constantly attempting to dethrone and devalue God. And it's an insult God finds offensive and disgusting. Well, the second scene is is verses 7 to 12. Just have a look at them. And in this one, if you scan your eyes across it, Ezekiel's shown a secret room hidden away in the temple. And there in the darkness are 70 of the elders of Israel. And we're told what they're doing in verse 12. Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in darkness, each at the shrine of his own idol? And this is what they say. The Lord does not see us. Oh, the Lord's forsaken the land. Now remember, this is a vision. It doesn't have to mean this is literally what was happening. It's It's a picture showing us something of what's behind idolatry. What's going on with these leaders and the people of Israel. It's not so much the fact of of bowing down to a statue, although there would have been that. Idolatry shows itself. Wherever I say, God doesn't really care what I do. He doesn't see. He doesn't bother about it. My own petty little secret sins are hidden away from him. I can do what I like. And you see that attitude in secret idol worship in Jerusalem. But you'll hear it in Fullwood with those of us who say, I can't see why God would have anything to say about who I sleep with. Or you'll hear it in Fullwood with those of us who say, I don't see why God would care that at work, in order to get ahead, I need to bend the rules and lie a little. 
uh, those secret idols hidden in your own head. And God says he sees them all and is disgusted. Well, his name is the name of the moment, isn't it? If you've been watching the news at all this week. Uh, The mention of it uh, carries the hopes and dreams, if not for everyone, then certainly for 20,000 Geordies who welcomed him to Newcastle FC during the week. Uh, Did you hear them on the news earlier in the week singing Keegan as he returned? Uh, At the mention of his return, uh, one of the tabloids changed the words of fog on the time to God on the time. If you had to pick an idol, would you really pick Kevin Keegan? (laughs) Lovely, lovely man that he is. And in verse 14, on the next stage of our Jerusalem tour, we hear another name being sung about. It's Thomas. We're not given much information about him, but in Ezekiel's day, his name would be as familiar as that of King Kevin of Newcastle. He was a fertility god. Uh, You look to him to provide for the harvest. The trouble with him was, he died every year. Or so the story went. So you had to do a kind of lament, mourning for him in the hope that he'd he'd come back to life again. And he'd provide you with what you need. It's incredible, isn't it? Against the backdrop of the glory of the God of Israel that people are singing songs to Tamas. That instead of asking the creator of life for help, well, they look to a God that even they acknowledge can't even keep himself alive year on year. Powerless. See, look, whether it's Tamas or Keegan, idolatry is not just about bowing down to statues. It's about rejecting God and seeking fulfillment in empty things. So you'll spot idolatry when you stop saying, thank you God for the good things you provide. Family, clothes, food, work, and and knowing you. And instead you start to say, my life will be fulfilled if only I can get the right family, the right clothes, enough money. Looking to those things to make your life complete Now, what is it that makes you sing for joy the most? What is it that makes you think, I won't be happy without that? Is it the generous God who will give you everything that you need? And God says, if it's anything else, you're singing songs to Thomas, and he can't deliver life. Now, there's one final stop on the tour. It's verses 16 and 17. Uh, The image in the vision is striking. Uh, Twenty-five men are bowing down with their backs to the temple. uh, Bowing down to the sun in the east. And you get the idea that's being conveyed. People eventually and completely uh, turning their backs on God. Uh, But the surprising thing is, it's what God seems to be bothered about here. It's there in verse 17. He says to Ezekiel, Have you seen this, son of man? Is it a trivial matter for the house of Judah to do the detestable things they are doing here? Must they also, and listen to what he says, fill the land with violence and continually continually and provoke me to anger? Uh, do you see the link that God makes there? See, as people start to reject God, 
they start to mistreat other people. See, as far as the Bible is concerned, well, that's exactly what we should expect, isn't it? Well, the Bible tells me that humanity, men and women, you and me, have a certain dignity. There's something special about it, isn't it? It's not because of our good looks or our money-earning capacity. They're exactly the kind of things that our world just admires. That's not what gives us dignity. No, our dignity is that we are made in God's image. So you begin to understand that it's, it's no surprise that as people start to devalue and mistreat God, they'll eventually begin to devalue and mistreat those who have been made in his image. You see, we could talk about genocides in Rwanda, the murder of prostitutes in our own country, but before you even get there, understand what we're being told. See, you can come to church Sunday by Sunday, you can serve in the student team or sing in the music group, but if on Monday morning you are mistreating a work colleague or cheating on your wife or bullying a schoolmate or lying to your parents, you are not a God worshipper. You are an idolater. See, wouldn't you prefer to keep how you view God and how you treat other people separate? God says you can't. How you relate to other people will eventually show what you think about God. So idolatry is not about bowing down to a statue. It's saying, I don't want God. God doesn't care what I do. Other things really provide my needs. And other people aren't really that important. You can trace God's response to it through the chapter, but it it reaches a a kind of climax in verse 18. And just look at it, as I tell you, because as as you read through the Bible, you see that God's described as seeing people who are in distress and hearing people who are troubled. And because he is loving and compassionate, he responds to them and helps. So by the time we get to verse 18 here, you get a sense of how bad it is. God's saying he'll close his eyes, cover his ears, and all you'll be left with is his anger. See, understand this. If you keep saying God doesn't see, God doesn't care, you'll find that's exactly what you'll get. Uh, There are some things that everyone knows. Things generally held is always true. You know the kind of thing. A dropped cat always lands on its feet. Computers always crash just before you save your work. Uh, The food that's tastiest is always the worst for you. And I guess in the realm of the Bible, some people like to add, well, the Old Testament is difficult to understand. Which is what makes chapter 9 so unsettling. Because the message seems to be a straightforward one. And it's this. God will destroy us because of idolatry. Now verse 1, just have a look at it. God calls for the guards of the city and they come each with a weapon in his hand. And then the command comes a bit later in verse 5 and it's as brutal as it is brief. Verse 5. Go through the city and kill without showing pity or compassion. Slaughter old men young men and maidens, women and children. You're meant to be stunned by those words. These words coming from a God who is described as loving. And don't get this wrong. 
This isn't run-of-the-mill activity for the God of the Bible. You read his story right through and you won't find he does this lightly. No, this is depicting a final act when God says there's nothing else to be done. And don't lose the irony of the image. The guards become the executioners. And the sanctuary of the temple becomes the slaughterhouse. And if Israel and Jerusalem give a picture of what we're all like, uh, you understand what we're being shown. The world we live in was meant to be a place where life would be guarded and safe. Enjoying life with God where we value one another. But because of persistent idolatry, rejecting God and corrupting ourselves, God has set a day when he'll issue this command, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. That's the message of Ezekiel 8 and 9. Well, almost. But there's one more thing. Before God's judgment comes on Jerusalem, a solitary man is sent into the city first. He's there in verse 2. A man clothed in linen who had a writing kit at his side. He's given an instruction in verse 4. You see it? I go throughout the city and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over the, all the detestable things that are done in it. And when judgment comes in verse 6, there's one exception. Just the one. I slaughter old men, young men and maidens, women and children, but do not touch anyone who has the mark. You see, whatever you think, this isn't a God who delights in bringing judgment. Now this is a God who, even at the last, is looking to see if there's anyone who will be saved. And did you notice who's saved in verse 2? It's not people who have done enough good things. It's, it's not people who are special or churchgoers. It's people who recognize God has been mistreated in the world that he's made. And they're sorry about that. Uh, they grieve and lament over the detestable things done. There are different ways that you can respond to Ezekiel 8 and 9. You can take offense at God. You can be outraged at his judgment. You can think its message is unrealistic. Although within a few years of writing this, uh, Jerusalem was put to the sword. But I think the response God hopes that we'll have is that we'll hear and receive his word as the truth. And that we'll start to say, how can I be marked for salvation? And please, would you mark me to be saved? See, how do we do that? I mean, it's a vision, isn't it? Uh, who's the man in the linen, linen clothes that can mark us for salvation? Well, just as we finish, would you turn over to the New Testament, to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13, and it's on page 1173 in your pew Bibles. Oh, in this letter, uh, Paul's writing to a church. And he's reminding them about the grace of God and his gracious salvation plan. And in it, he talks about another solitary man. Not just sent to a city, but sent to the whole world. 
And here's what he says to the people he's writing to in verse 13. And you also were included in Jesus Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed that you were marked in him with a seal. Having believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. See how we can be marked? God marks for salvation anyone who believes in Jesus. As we come in a few moments to remember Jesus' rescuing death on our behalf, I hope we'll pray with fresh understanding the words, We do not presume to come to this, your table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your manifold and great mercies. Can I ask, now do you understand why you need Jesus? Can I ask, are you trusting him? And recognizing you were an idolater who mistreats God in his world, and are sorry for that.